in verse 13. We'll read through verse 24, and then we'll just go right back and walk through this portion of Scripture together to see what we have. We're going to read through it, and then we're going to pray. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore acknowledge such men. Verse 19, the churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily, greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that meets in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. God, as we would now process and think through what we've taken a glance at and read through, we would ask, God, that you would teach us your word, reveal what we need to know individually, knit us together collectively as your gathering, your body of believers in this community. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us your word today, where our hearts would be soft, receptive, eager to learn, quick to love. Teach us, God. Lead us for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's just, as I mentioned, let's just move right back to verse 13. And we see watch. Obviously, this is an exhortation, you know, from the content previous in the, in the, in the previous chapters as well. But realize, it means be observant, to be attentive, watch. And I, I know we tend to watch and look, and we should, for things that are out of sync, out of place, some security issues or some risk factors, and those are important to see. I think we also got to remember to, to discipline ourselves and to train ourselves and to teach ourselves to see the good taking place and learn from that as well. Uh, I think you see what I'm saying. It, it, it makes sense. You'd notice something out of place, but we also want to see those good things. And I think you do have to train yourself to see them. It, it's easier to to see the things that don't seem to synchronize, the things that seem to be out of place. It uh, seems like the things out of place and the things that are kind of on the negative inclination tend to be the louder ones. The things that are in place tend to be more quiet and constant. It's a silly analogy to some degree, but it conveys the image so simply. When you come in here and you settle in, you notice if we didn't vacuum. Correct? If you see a cookie and stuff on the floor, you're like, that's weird. You know, especially if it was there last week. But nonetheless, if you see it, you go, oh. But you didn't notice the five other weeks that nothing was there. Because we tend to see what's negative. So we have to train ourselves to see what's in place and to notice certain things. So I want to encourage you to watch and look for what is happening. 
it, it's obvious sometimes in the world you live in what's going wrong morally and ethically in the world around us. Be attentive. Be observant to what is going, going well, if you would. goes on to say, stand fast. So you're looking, you're noticing, but you're also standing fast. It speaks of uh, the analogy, if you would, or the imagery is uh, to maintain your footing, to withstand the storms. You see the storms. You, we live in, a, I think, an amazing place just from being able to see things. If you've drove to Boise or anywhere outside of here, even just driving to base, because of the plain, the flat area, some call it a desert that we live in, you see things on the horizon. You see the storms coming, agreed? And I think they're beautiful. Honestly, you're going to see some things, especially coming into the spring as things pass through. If you haven't been here, you know what I'm talking about. Well, the thing is, you you see the storms. You see the signs. And the exhortation here is, to see the signs, and I can make this one practical, lean into the wind. You know that happens, right? Because you don't see the wind. According to John 3, we know we don't see the wind, but we see the results of the wind. So i seen this happening last week even. People were coming in, and the usher, greeter, and other people at different times, they've seen the effects of the wind. So as people were coming in, they were leaning into it and holding on to our door. Because our door has, at that time, somebody had turned the automatic opener on called the wind. And so it literally would whip open like it's a glass door. Like the people were just grabbing it because they seen it. They were understood it. And at the same time, when you, I seen some ladies walking in a little frustrated last week because their hair was in front. And they just got it done, so to speak. And they're like, I should walk it backwards. Ah. But I do know, I did notice this. People were leaning into the wind. To keep your balance, to maintain your So what am I talking about? Well, you are in this world we live in, lean into the wind morally, ethically, in the culture around you. Be aware of the winds of change and the storms that are blowing. Because the Lord's telling us, watch, be aware, stand fast, be brave. It, it literally speaks of act like a man. Man up, if you would. We know that there is an, uh, uh, an assault, so to speak, uh, an attack, if you would, on biblical masculinity. If, if, you're, if you stand firm, I'm not talking about tough John Wayne, testosterone, packing a pistol and a, and a lever action type of attitude. I'm just talking about real men who, who know their calling and know how to stand courageously and know how to live in a brave fashion. Because... There's an essential role for a godly man in every society, in every culture, in family. God has designed it. We'll catch some of this when I speak on the, at the men's breakfast, and we'll talk about some things. But I just want to encourage you to be brave. It's not just the masculine side, women as well. The, the point is, why do we need to be brave? Because there's risk. Because there's challenge. We live in a world that you have to stand firm and stand, and stand clear because you know what you stand for. Be strong. You need to be strong because you will face increasing opposition. Be strong. How do you be strong? Well, it's simple, actually. You start weak and get stronger. That's really what's conveyed. You're, you're, you're at a point, maybe you're not the strength. You get at anybody who's, you know, um, felt the need to, to mess with gravity with what they call a bench press. 
or whatever, you know. So they know you start at a certain point, hope you're building up because you continue to fight, so to speak, or, or you know, pursue those particular goals. Be brave, be strong. How, how can we be strong? What does it mean, not just physically, what's, what's conveyed, what's capsulized in this, this letter that he's given us these final proverbs and exhortations? Be strong in love. Do you see the next verse? Let all that you do be done with love. Let that be the, the, the stabilizing presence. Let that be the motivating presence. Let that be the conscious relational awareness. People don't need correction without love. They need correction with love. Every one of us. And it's so important that we have some way, some knowledge, some awareness that we want to convey love. See, love changes things. Love changes the way you work with people, agreed? Some of us, maybe we've, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity, um, before moving to Mountain Home, I worked uh, in the trucking industry doing rec repair on semis. And uh, I was in a leadership position for several years in that particular, uh, comp- with that company. And I had to work with people and difficult things had to be done. And I did it differently then than I do it now. I did it differently before I was born again than I did after I was born again because love changes things. Difficult things must be done. Make sure they're done with love. Make sure they're done with his love. We see in Colossians, we can bring that up on projection. Colossians 3, 17, we're told, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that kind of covers it. Can we agree? Whatever you do in word, in other words, whatever you're talking about, and whatever you're physically doing, do it with this in mind. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Does that mean we just say in Jesus' name and then go rogue or do whatever we want to do? I mean, what's the restrictions? What's the, what's the framework of that? Because it's relational. And he's saying, you know, not only is it relational, it's awareness. It's also carrying this awareness, as we've seen there from Colossians 3, of gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Think of it this way. When someone is present with you, it affects what you do, right? So think about it from just, let's start with like a parental perspective. A child is inclined or tilted to do something, but mom's there, dad's there, they're now restricted a little bit because they're smart. They realize, I probably shouldn't do this because they're right here. Mom's right here. Dad's right there. Likewise, whether it's a mom or a dad or a spouse or a boss, when someone is with us, it affects how we do things. And so here's what I think is a practical description, if you would. Choose to be consciously aware of his presence. Consciously aware of his presence. It will affect what you do and how you do it. it, it the, the, the wranglings of your mind, if you have such a thing, the mulling where you're kind of weighing things out. You've ever had those like scenario assumptions? Oh, if they ever say that to me again, I'm going to... And you always build this up, right? You're, you're the hero somehow, the victim who becomes the hero and saves the planet or whatever. Because you just know, man, oh, I can't believe they said that. I can't believe they did that. 
But what if we stopped and realized at that point we should say, oh, man, this, oh, that's what a travesty. Oh, Jesus, what do you think? Because he's probably going to say, really? <laughs> really, Dan? Are you serious? What if we believe that he's aware of who we are and what we do and what we think? What if we agreed with Scripture when we're having these little pity party kind of things within our cranium? What if we believed what he says, the petition of a psalmist, the request of a follower of Jesus Christ would be this. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. Because when we're consciously aware of his presence, all of a sudden our little singular thing is with another person. He's with us. And it helps us to actually reconcile things. It helps us to cast all of our cares upon him because we realize he cares for us. It helps us to be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, to let our requests, our petitions be known to him because he's with us. And I want to encourage you because that really um, is what's being reminded to the, to the church here and to, to, the, to the gathering of people there in Corinth and, of course, to us as well, that we would do whatever we do in word or deed, it would be done with love. Now let's continue into verse 15 where it says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. So Stephanus and the, and the other two guys, Fortunatus and uh, Caicus, um, Stephanus was the, one of the, probably the first uh, person to come to Christ. Paul probably even led him to Christ in, in this relationship. And so the gathering there and in his household and the, the people that are there, it seems they had obviously some issues had come up. So he comes to, to Paul. And, and as we'll see here in a little bit, we already read it, that they then respond. Paul responds with this letter we're reading to the to concerns that had come up. My point is, Stephanus was somebody who, it says in this text, they devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Remember our heading, if you would, subheading, so to speak, as we go through this, is keys to to godly community within the church. What are some practical expressions? What's some, some real ways to be living and it says that they devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. If you have a, a King James version, or if you reference, you'll notice that King James translates this word, addicted. Devoted, they translate it as addicted themselves. They addicted themselves to the ministry of the, of the church, to so the ministry of the saints. Think about that. They, they, they practiced... And functionally, if it's what is conveying, is they, they came to a point where they, they needed to serve. They wanted to serve so bad. It was such a compelling part and an integral part of their lives. They committed, devoted, addicted themselves to that. What were they committed so, so beautifully to? To the ministry of the saints. Ministry speaks of uh, serving. It speaks of service. It speaks of, of relief. So here they realized, if you would, the value. They'd seen what God was doing in relationships, and they committed to it to bring relief, to help others recognize the faithfulness of God. 
as we look at this, we want to realize, because I, it happens in our life, but it was a pretty critical thing in the, in the first century, the first generation of the church. The early church was criticized, was chastised, was cast aside by the government and by the people around them. They were denied jobs. They were denied housing, uh, humanitarian support. They were rejected by family members as well as by friends. And so when you see this, it helps us to realize when they're cast aside by culture, they actually are called to come together to one, with one another, to recognize that, yes, although these things have happened, you have a family here that's much greater than what you had there. It's not that they, as Christians, were to ignore family. We're to realize we've been brought in to a much bigger family and to devote ourselves to taking care of one another. Oh, I did it. Let's try this again in this service. So we'll see how uh, willing to receive you are. So take a moment right now and just look around at each other. Go ahead. You can do it. It's legal. Just look around each other. What a collection of misfits. Agreed? You visually verified it right there. You looked around and you probably had to say, I I don't know most of these people. And some of them are scary. I don't know most of these people. I don't know that I would hang out with them. That's what a family is. Right? That's what a family is. You can call it functional. You can call it dysfunctional. I don't know. I think it's dysfunction junction. It's no big deal. If you've read about the Garden of Eden and the exit and the beginning of dysfunctionality, you realize that we got to measure different. See, we are brought together. We are as a family with a common reality. We are actually blood family. We're brought together by the blood of Christ. And because of that, we need to realize that, that there is, there's something greater than we can imagine. Because I know some of you, um, I know, well, many of you, considering the last service of service and some who are online watching, and, and some of you have been through this very thing I'm describing, where you have been rejected by family members. You don't get invited to the get-togethers like you used to. They, they treat you, they ostracize you, they, they look at you like some type of a, of a, a religious weirdo or a Bible thumper. And they, they just they just they just don't even want to communicate it to you. They just you don't get the invites. You know what I'm saying? You you're not invited to the things you used to do, and sometimes that's good. Trust me. I remember some of the things that we were no longer invited to, and it was because when we went to them, we left early. You know, well, you know, Dan and Cam, they're not going to stay long anyway. Yeah, because we want to leave before the alcohol has full effect. We want to leave before dumb blooms. And so we just kind of had that mindset. It's like, okay. Now they took it as some type of judgment. It's not. We just realized this is just not where we're at anymore. And of course, you know, you know I'm not speaking of something unique to my and Kim's life. I, I know many people have went through this. I, I know people that have not been given a job because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their unwillingness, or they've lost jobs, because of their unwillingness to follow along with this culture. 
and willing to stand firm. And so recognize this. This exhortation is given, and this beautiful reminder in this latter part of chapter 16, this relational reality that you are a part of a bigger family than you can imagine. You're a part of a historical family, a a contemporary family, and if you would, see even this future family that we'd be as we get to know each other in heaven. So I encourage you, remember one another. Be aware of one another. They devoted themselves to serving the saints. Real quickly, I know it's too cliche and a little catchy, I don't know. You are either a saint or an ain't. You are either born again, born of the Spirit, and set apart by God for his purposes, or you are not. This is only two categories. You don't earn sainthood. You, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a result of what Jesus has done for you. You receive it, and, and then you are set apart for his purposes, or you have not yet received it. So when he says that, devoted to the ministry, serving the saints, verse 16, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Submit to such and everyone who works and labors with us. Uh, That word, submit, submission, submissive, it's a word that's been, you know, totally misunderstood so frequently. It's been abused and misused way too much. It means to arrange under or to subordinate. Um, it, it speaks of to, to yield to one's admonition or advice. So it, it really has nothing to do with superiority and inferiority. It, it, submit speaks of order. Submitting to the order. Ephesians 5.21 tells, instructs us to, to submit to one another in the fear of God or in the reverence of God. So we recognize God's design in human engagement and interaction in what we call a civil manner when there's an issue, a need for order. And in order to have order, you need to submit to the order. So he says, you know, therefore submit to such, you know, maintain this order. Well, what does submitting look like? Because I think it's distorted. I think it's hard to grasp. I know people have misused and said you're supposed to submit, and they've taken an authoritarian position to try to establish their lack of order by, by, by reigning over someone. And so, let's look at a couple verses. In Philippians chapter 2, I believe this conveys beautifully what it would look like for you, for me, for all of us as we would engage and serve one another. It says in Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It goes on to say in verse 4, Let each of you look, not, look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Does that help paint the picture? Does that show the mindset? which would produce the lifestyle of submitting to one another in the body of Christ with Jesus as the head, the Lord of the church, that we could serve one another, that we would revere God by the way that we live in submission to God. Continuing in our text, verse 17, I'm glad about the coming of these three guys for what was lacking on your part 
they supplied. So there was something that was an opportunity and, and something that the church in Corinth could have done, but what didn't it didn't happen. We don't know what it is. But the three representatives that came to connect with Paul with this also a letter asking questions, they were able to provide. They were able to meet that need. My point would be cover for one another. Cover for one another. One, they couldn't do it, but these three did. I've shared how this, I see this lived out and um, even manifested in, in, the, in the interaction even within this, this church body we call Calvary Chapel, this gathering called Calvary Chapel Mountain Home. Someone calls a, a, another person on the team and says, hey, I really don't think I'm going to make it in the morning. I, I got this lingering cough and, and I really don't want to greet people at the door with a hearty, <coughs> so could you cover for me tomorrow? And what do they do? Yeah, man, I'll cover for you. So then they fill in. Uh, same thing I see it in areas of responsibility where you realize, I can't do it. There's a reason I'm not able to, but I, I know I can get a hold of this person. You see what I'm saying? There's that part where we recognize the needs within the family, and we learn, as we see here, we cover for one another. Verse 18, so when this is taking place, for they refresh my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Uh, speaks of they um, calmed and encouraged. So Paul recognized that when this interaction of looking out for the needs of one another took place, he, he said, man, that was so cool. That's so awesome that that took place. That happened. And he's refreshed. It, it speaks of calmed and encouraged. It's like a like a gift of fresh water to a weary traveler. That analogy will, will have a lot more punch in August than it does in February when it's really hot and you're, dry, you know, you're thirsty and a, a glass of refreshing, cool water. Oh, that's really what's being conveyed. Like, I was so refreshed that the body, the interaction was such that it glorified God that they, they covered for one another. And he says, you know, acknowledge. I'm not going to put them on a pedestal, but even duplicate or, or follow that example. One translation says it this way. They have been a great encouragement to me and to you as well. You should recognize the value of such people. Isn't that a good way to say it? And this just, I think it's beautiful. Let's continue on verse 19 and 20. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's just be mindful of one another. I'll give you clarity. No holy kissing. Okay, that's not the culture. It's not where you live. You might have a relationship that you can give a healthy hug. But hold off on the holy kisses, okay? That's just not our thing, you know. And I, I know you may be more spiritual than I am, but please keep your lips off each other. It's, it's a simple thing. Agreed? You got to have a boundary. You got to know the culture. You got to know the framework. You got you to recognize the relationship. Some people you'll say hi to for a distance, some people a handshake, some people a hug. If you're not married, don't kiss them. It's really simple. Anyway, I just humor, okay? Just, don't be like. Send him an email over that. Okay. <laughs> Verse 21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. 
I actually think there's more to this than just a simple reminder that it's from Paul. I believe Paul wanted to make sure that he connected and kept the personal touch. And I believe that's really important in the world you live in. I have no issue with digital communication. There's no problem with email. There's smaller problems with email, um, tax, whatever. But, but the personal touch is important. Can we agree? He's sending this letter, but he wants them to know this. He's writing, according to Galatians, it seems to be um, Paul might have flunked cursive. He may not have had the most clear handwriting. Most of his letters seemed to be that he would dictate them and someone would, would write them down, which is smart. It's no big deal. But he also was saying, hey, I'm signing this in my name. As a personal touch to the people he connected with. And you can apply that in your life. You know there's that person in your life. You want to just keep the personal connection, uh, encouragement, the reminder, which is really what this is oriented about. Verse 22. We'll skip that one. Move on to verse 23. I'm just kidding. <laughs> verse 22 seems out of place. Can we agree? It seems harsh. It's like, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be a curse, anathema. And then he says, oh, Lord, come, maranatha. It's like, well, what, what's being conveyed there? How does that fit? Can we agree the flow of this letter is supportive and encouraging and positive? And it seems like, what? Well, it's this. Let me start with this. If you don't love Jesus, why would you want to spend eternity with him? That's really the core of it, because what he what he's conveying is is to love God, love Jesus. And if you don't love Jesus, what do you love? You know, you, you can you can follow religion, you can line up with his teaching, you can agree with the the morality and the ethics that come from Scripture. You can align yourself with the principles and even the practices, and still not be born again. Still not have a born-again experience with the living God. When you love someone, there's an outward expression. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. Love has a corresponding action, just like a genuine belief. Agreed? Because that's how they go together. You could say, well, the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, we know that to be absolutely true. But doesn't belief have more to it than just a response in a gathering or an agreement with the principle? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou, and thou shalt be saved? It speaks of to trust. There's a corresponding action to that belief. And the action of faith is called love. Think about it this way as far as action. I'm teaching. and I have a view because I'm looking this way. You're looking that way. And I, I see you know, some excitement, so to speak, out through the window there. And I catch a glimpse through a little bit over here, and I realize some activity going on out there, and there's some smoke, and there's some fire, and some things happening. And, and I realize, and I believe, I believe that this place is at risk. This gathering right here is going to be consumed by fire if we don't do something. But I want to finish my message. But... I don't want to upset people on a Sunday morning. They came to, you know, hear from the Lord. But I just, you know, it just would be so awkward to have to break up our routine. My belief, if I really believe there's a risk, 
will have a corresponding action, correct? I will say, hopefully, to this degree, hey, um, so let's, uh, let's just kind of wrap things up. There's some stuff going on outside. Let's very calmly, let's move to the side over here. We're going to go out here and do the lobby and to the front and, until we kind of get confirmation of what's going on. Because this belief had an action. When you say, I believe on Jesus, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, there's an action, and the action of faith is love. You now have the capacity in you, because he lives within you, to love in a deeper way, in a more powerful way. So I would encourage you, as the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love Jesus today and every day until you see him face to face. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, grace is a gift that enables you to walk by faith. Grace, unmerited favor by God, revealed your sin in such a way that you could agree with your guilt, but, but ask for his forgiveness because it was his unmerited favor that was brought to you. Grace enables you to love and serve and commune with one another beyond what you could do naturally. As it wraps up, we see there in verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Love one another with his love. Love one another in his love. So I'm going to have the worship team come up as we're going to, to take communion today. And I'm so glad to be able to work through this text and, and think about the community and then bringing together. And then what Jesus said in regards to recognizing what he's done as he's brought us together we want to realize what price was paid that we could be adopted in and brought into the family of God. Jesus actually established something for you and me. He did it even before the cross. He established that we would, we would in a very practical way, we, we'd take a representation of his body, a piece of bread, and even the contents of a cup, we would recognize these two things were symbolic. They recognized his body and his blood, which was given for us. And he said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He said that to his disciples, this taking of communion that he, communion that he instituted. So we will take communion. Communion is for those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have something to remember. Don't feel pressured if you're not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't feel like you have to come forward when other people are. No, you don't. This is a personal decision. If someone chooses to take communion today, we provided the elements and we provided the opportunity environment. So if you'll stand with me, we'll pray. And then we will uh, have a song of worship together. During that song of worship, if you would like to take communion, the elements are, as I've mentioned, on the side. And there's some in the back that you can pick them up during that time. Hold on to them. And then I'll step back up here uh, at the end of the song and we'll take communion together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. What at first glance seems like a, a final thought. And oh, by the way, once again, you unveil and reveal there's much more to it within your family, the family you brought us into. Thank you, God, that you would teach us how to love one another, remember one another, serve one another, be aware of our need for one another as we would keep our eyes on you. Thank you, Jesus. And for anyone here or listening, 
You hear these things, but you're not convinced that you're a child of God. Matter of fact, you're, you have no reason to think you are. You, you're okay with the idea of Jesus, but you have yet to submit or surrender to him. I would encourage you even right now, just to simply begin in this point with this prayer from your heart to agree with God concerning your sin, your rebellion, your defiance, your going against God's design for your life. You simply agree that you have done that and that you need forgiveness for your sin. Recognizing also the only way by which you can be forgiven is through the work that Jesus has accomplished by putting faith in him because he died for your sin, because he rose from the grave, conquering death, because he ascended into heaven, literally conquering death and hell, and proving that he is God. You put your faith in him. God, forgive me of my sins. I put my trust in you, Jesus. I would ask, I would beg, I would implore, please, Show me how to live this life. I have no clue what to do. Show me how to live this life in a way that honors you. To not go back this week to what I used to do, but to live from this day forward focused on you. Give me this new life. I ask it in your name, Jesus. And for all of us, God, may you help us even now as we hear this song and sing along even. May our hearts and minds be prepared to remember, to realize and recognize what you have done for us. So we sing this this song in your name to your glory. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Amen.